0: Hello everyone, my guest today is Matt Price, he's the Senior Vice President of Zendesk's Product Portfolio. Now prior to this role he served as SVP of Marketing and as Vice President and General Manager of Europe, Middle East and Africa. Before joining Zendesk he served as the Chief Marketing Officer at another technology company. Matt, are you ready to take us to the top? I'm really excited to be here Nathan. Go yeah, let's go. Thanks for joining. So. Usually I have founders on, but you've been around Zendesk so long. You've seen a lot of the story.
1: When did Zendesk launch and what year did you join? Zendesk launched almost exactly 10 years ago. And I joined six years ago. And in fact, I kind of like to characterize myself as a founder. I I was the first hire in Europe. So uh, part of of that and helped set up the business, uh, helped set up the business then, fell in love with Zendesk and SaaS. And so
0: walk us through, obviously Zendesk does many things. In fact, I've had one entrepreneur on, I forget his name, but it was with Outbound and you guys acquired him. So we got some of the Zendesk story through those guys, but tell us what Zendesk does today and what's the core business model? How do you make money? Yeah.
1: I mean, Zendesk is a, a customer service platform uh, quite simply. And and what made Zendesk so successful in the early days, I mean, Zendesk got its first 10,000 customers without any salespeople. And, and what they figured out was A way to actually take something that was kind of simple that everybody needed, which was customer service, but cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and loads of consultants in order to get it up and running and make that super simple for any type of business to get up and running. And that's what we're still doing today. We're trying to take complex Complex thing, make them very consumable, allow people to buy them from a subscription model, allow them to try it before they buy. So really classic SaaS.
0: And I want to dive into pricing strategy, product positioning, that kind of stuff, because what you're focused on, but just real quick, some rapid fire stuff. Zendesk today, team size is what?
1: Uh, Just over 200, uh, sorry, just over 2000 employees. Okay, 2000.
0: And mainly spread
1: between which two cities or three or more? Yeah, I mean, headquarters in San Francisco, but we have large offices in Melbourne, uh, in Australia, Dublin. Uh, we have a big facility in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, as well. Okay, great. Um, and then, uh, in terms of funding, total funding raised is what today? We raised um, eighty-five million pre-IPO, hundred million in IPO, and then two hundred million on secondary.
0: Yep. So let's go back pre-IPO. Remind us again what IPO date was?
1: Oh, nice and it was uh, May the fifteenth. Uh, what do we say? Uh, 2015. Okay, good. So pre-IPO, uh,
0: what was shaping? You were you would have been at the company about three years, I think, at that point, or four years. What yep. was shaping product strategy, and how did you think about pricing?
1: Yeah, it's, it, it, at that stage, we were um, we were really just starting our evolution from being a, a single product company to become a multi-product company, and so that was one dynamic in thinking about pricing. The other dynamic is that we were really starting to move up market for larger businesses at that point in time. Zendesk was for small businesses to begin with, but really started to acquire a lot lot larger business. We think of that as people who have more than 100 seats. Um, What we really started to think about at that time was, how do we put a pricing model that allows companies to um, pay for the value they're getting out of the software? allows them to scale super really simply and, and keeps complexity out of the business model. So a lot of these enterprise software vendors had super, super complex um, menus of, of, of purchasing options. And we just wanted to keep it very simple. So we we stayed true. We had a per agent cost. And, um, you know, you could have a plan type of, of just a, a simple plan or a more enterprise plan as well. And that's pretty much where we are today. We have a few variations on that. But, you know, where we are.
0: Was it accidental that you ended up moving upstream? Or Was that intentional? You know, bo- at the board meeting, investors are going, "We've got to charge more. Like, we need margins to be higher. We need less touch."
1: No, it was never. It was never really a factor of, of uh, you know the commercial aspects. I mean, send this business really. Gr- I mean, right from the day when the guys just put the first website out and the first customers bought, we were very much a product and demand driven company, and so we would look at. Uh, early demand uh, or early adoption patterns and then start to test, say, OK, is this where we can take things? And, and if we invest in these areas, you know, will it help? And what we found from enterprise software was all of a sudden we were getting these large businesses who say, hey, we love the simplicity of what you do. We love that we can test and buy we found that the buy- we were finding buyers in customer service who, whose IT departments couldn't help them and they could set up and run the things themselves rather than having to hire outside parties. And so we doubled down on it. And that's what we try and do today with, even as we move more up market, we try and make our software such so you don't need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on consulting, but you know, you can deploy it very quickly. And that's where that's where a lot of the enterprise traction is coming from.
0: And now you have chat, support, guide and talk as kind of your big beachheads, correct?
1: Those are the main products for the, for the channels. Um, and then, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, we we've, we've made recent acquisition on uh, Outbound, and, which is a new product we're bringing into the portfolio. You're probably That, that price had to have been released, right? What did you guys pay for them? No, it hasn't been released, should. Oh, sure. it hasn't? Okay. No, 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 no. But I mean, you know, but when we looked at them, I mean, it's probably, it's interesting to think about how we do value these. They gave a really interesting strategic value because we see support moving from being a, not just a reactive thing, but a proactive thing where you can, you can push messages out when you realize a customer might be having problems. And so taking what they would built from a, a marketing perspective and applying that to proactive service was super interesting. And we love the talent that, that we acquired and, you know, and the vision. And so for us, it was, a, it offered a lot of value in a, on a number of vectors and that's what we look for on acquisition.
0: Are you talking right now to front app for an acquisition?
1: We are not. You're as not. Far as <laughs>
0: from how do you decide? As far as you were, that's a good answer. Uh, you can always plausible deniability. If it happens tomorrow, you can say, Nathan, I had no idea. you welcome to be in a public company. Welcome, exa- exactly. Um, in all seriousness, though, how do you decide? I mean, that space, I could point to 30 companies, very similar to Outbound, very similar teams, very similar tech stack.
1: How do you make decisions around where to focus your time? Um. We we have a reasonable understanding based upon where we, uh, you know, what our customers are asking for, and, and some of the market dynamics as to where things, where things are moving. Um, and, and, and then from that, really, it's just a case of, okay, you know, should we build in order to, should we build in order to, uh, you know, base it on our own tech stack, or, or are there some people and some tech that's there that can really help to accelerate that and also enhance our knowledge of a particular domain? And, and that's, you know, that's what we found from the outbound guys. But you know, there's some stuff we built ourselves. Our, uh, uh, our machine, latest machine learning product, Answerbot, we we, we built ourselves. Um, you know, and uh, you know, we have data scientists on staff, and because a lot of the work on that is how does it integrate integrate very very smoothly into the other products that you've got. Mm-hmm
0: walk me through um, pricing axes. And what I mean by that is when Brian Halligan came on the show, he talked about a key driver of HubSpot's growth was to break from just a Cartesian plane where there were two things that you could upsell on, maybe seats and some feature, and adding a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth, but you can't add too much complexity. How do you make a decision whether to add something as a pricing-based utility axis or just let it be included for free?
1: Yeah, it, I think it's a really it's a really good question. I think that um, sometimes putting things in as free can actually uh, add complexity to the customer if they're not going to want to use it, and and also makes them feel that they're maybe over overpaying because they're getting things that they actually don't want to use. I mean, the they, uh, traditional pricing model calls them, you know, killers. I think you know McDonald's did testing, and they, that's why they add the fries, but they don't throw th- throw in the apple pie because they add apple pies into their suite and the uh, and, and the sales of it went down, regardless if somebody was getting it for free. So that's the first consideration. There's been a lot of work and a lot of studies on that. Then the question is really is, how do you equate the pricing model to value? And mm-hmm. an example of that is AnswerBot. So for example, this is a, an ML product that we bought that will actually solve customer questions for you uh, based upon looking at the question and then finding resources. And we looked at that and the value to a customer of them not having to that, have that question go to a support agent, which tends to cost, you know, can cost tens, fifteen, tens, $20 uh, is very, very high. So we decided to price that separately and, and we charge $1 per resolution on, on that as well. And it's very easy yeah. for the customer. Starting, to at,
0: starting at the 50 bucks per month uh-huh yeah yeah this is it's the reason i bring these questions up is because when i go between your support chat guide and talk pricing models like support yeah. it's very clear there's one yeah. utility based pricing metric that i can see which is number of agents the rest are bullet points tied really to features when i go uh-huh. to chat though when, when you go from light to a team plan you do have some utility based metrics or number based metrics that are not per agents for example two triggers two departments uh-huh. those then turn unlimited at the 30 dollars price point so i'm trying to get a sense of, are these always under testing mode, or have you identified that you should only have one number-based metric tied to a pricing plan?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the beauty of SaaS. You know, when we started talking, I just fell in love with SaaS and its business. And somebody who's comes from the commercial side, and you can enter into these decisions with your eyes very wide open as as, as to what are people using, and 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 set some thresholds there as as, as to uh, you know the types of businesses and. Uh, and what the long tail is on, on some of this stuff, and so actually, typically where a long tail exists, then there's an opportunity to actually add a premium price uh, to those into those features because they have very specific utility to a small number of customers.
0: Do you, when you look at new experiments to run? How do you typically find them? I found it very interesting when I've had some other CEOs that are your size software companies, they'll look at customers that have had the highest lifetime value over the past 10 years, reverse engineer their onboarding flows and then replicate
1: that for new customers coming on. How do you do it? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a really good question. And actually, you know, if if you were to ask me what I wish I'd done, you know, six years ago, or, or if I was founding a company now, actually building and ingraining testing methodology into a business right from day one would be super important. And whether it's building A/B testing into structures, into everything that it, you do, collecting the right product analytics, or, or testing in a geography before you roll out, you roll out to the whole business, um, we definitely look for signals. Uh, you know, we, we look for um, and we do segment. a, a uh, for, for usage across uh, uh, across different uh, customer uh, different customer segments and, and, and different plans, um, yeah. I wouldn't say we necessarily focus on you know trying to replicate what is the largest customers. Largest customers tend to be outliers and have very unique requirements. In which case, you need to overlay certain levels of, levels of service on top of that. What, what, a lot of what we're trying to do on product is. Um, really solve the problem for our broad base of customers and, uh, you know, and, and and move things in that direction. Typically, it's around product usage. Though,
0: Guys, I get asked all the time, Nathan, you host all these interviews, hundreds of them per month. How do you do them efficiently? And guys, the answer is simple. People always agree to my calendar, back to back meetings. I batch my interviews to stay very efficient. And the way that I do it is I use a tool called Acuity Scheduling at NathanLatka.com forward slash schedule. And the reason I use them is very simple. They keep my no show rate very low because they send out reminders about when the interview or the meeting is coming up. And also they make it very easy to schedule time, right? I don't have to go back and forth via email 10,000 times with people I'm trying to meet with. Okay. At NathanLatka.com forward slash schedule helps me so much. And by the way, Look, I like have so many meetings. I'm the best at meetings, okay? I do them back-to-back, very, very efficient. You guys know me. Many people say I'm the most efficient they've ever seen, okay? So I use the tool. It's so efficient. And by the way, I got Gavin. I said, Gavin, he's the CEO. I said, I want a great deal for my people. He said, Nathan, well, most people get a 14-day trial. Isn't that great? I said, no. He's given us a 45-day free trial at NathanLatka.com forward slash schedule. That's not going to stay up forever, so go get it now. NathanLatka.com forward slash schedule. How do you differentiate between what's signal and what's noise, and can you quantify that in terms of a sample size or cohort? You know if this percent of people do x, we know it's a signal, not noise. Uh, it's um,
1: again it, 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 it is it is bearable. I think in many cases on product usage, you have to look at things for a certain amount of time. Uh, it's amazing how you know how time can best, whether it's trial adoption or not because. You are going to get weird things like seasonality coming in, or you're going to get other factors coming in. So I, I would say, looking at things long enough, um, I, actually, I it's funny you say on that as uh, on using a sample set or not as well, because I, I feel a lot of people don't use cohorts or samples enough. So actually, you can get probably more intelligence a lot of time than te- out of taking a hundred a sample of a hundred customers and looking deep into what those customers are doing, whether it's when did they adopt, what features are they doing? You've got a big enough sample size that you can then extend out across your whole base rather than trying to do a top-down and look at your whole user base and and make assessments uh, assessments out of that. So um, I always encourage our product managers to try and, even if they're looking at broad-based metrics, to look at a, a customer cohort and go deep and understand what's what's underlying the numbers as well do you have a system
0: or a process that makes experimentation in pricing and onboarding at zendesk easy and it might sound something like yeah if anyone wants to run a test that requires a budget of less than two grand and less than a sample size of testing on one percent of our customers they can do it without my approval do you, do you have any kind of format process like that
1: um there's definitely small tests that we can use on subsections, products, on things like onboarding or or, or feature adoption, um, anything that tends to hit the main main funnel, or or has a potential uh, revenue, you know, uh, meaningful revenue impact. Then yeah, we'll look at very carefully. We'll look at very carefully. But we do have. I work very closely with our CMO, and we we, we tip in the same way that developers have have backlogs uh, of things they want to get to. We have a backlog of things that we want to get to, and some of it's low-hanging fruit. Some of it requires re-engineering of processes, which is a longer-term project.
0: Yep. No, a lot of people will credit Facebook success and Amazon success to the process of how their systems are set up that allows for not, as Malcolm Gladwell will say, 10,000 hours of practice, but the first to 10,000 tests is who wins. And so whoever builds a system to test faster, more efficiently is actually who's going to
1: win over the long run. It's exactly that. It's the, it's, and that's, you know, people use, you know corporate words like agility yeah. and you know moving fast ultimately that's a lot of what it is it's being able to test quickly you know one of my favorite quotes uh, from an old boss was that you know when you when you're moving fast or growing fast you're going to fall over a lot and it's not how many times you fall over it's how quickly you recover mm-hmm. and, and putting that that early sensing and recovery against your tests and making decisions quickly is is really important
0: when you have a tool that you launch, like your automated response on customer support, if that starts to do really well, people might not need to pay so many support people, which means their per agent pricing goes down on one of your other products. How do you uh-huh. deal and try and identify patterns where one, where the even the success on one of your products actually cannibalizes one of your others, and do you do anything to try and balance that?
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, what 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 you have to do is 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 try and actually build products that. Or not try and uh, you know skew the market to how what you want people to buy. You have to actually deliver stuff that people actually want to want to use, and then think about how you price for the value on the back of that. So, you know, we're going full on on you know automated uh, automation and self service. And yeah, we price per agents, but w- we know that we can figure it out down the line. The important thing is to deliver technology that's relevant to the customer today. But when we do launch, we do we do look at things carefully. We we do we will do uh, survey research. Um, we'll work with some of our early adoption customers. We'll look at some of the metrics that they're getting. I mean, what's interesting on AnswerBot, which is our product, one of our earlier customers was Dollar Shave Club, and actually what they did was, even though that they were freeing up time, even though that we are answering more more solutions they decided to actually keep the same number of agents and invest that agent time in offer a better level of service and i think that actually characterizes where a lot of these leading companies or disruptors are is that they're looking to how they, they can gain a competitive advantage for service not necessarily drive the cost to the bottom line over the
0: next 12 months, what will be a bigger driver of Zendesk product and pricing decisions? Um, increasing wallet share across current customer base or expanding ARPU across current customer base or going and finding new wallets to acquire completely
1: yeah I, I, the we we're, we're definitely seeing uh, very strong growth um, up market you know our I think over a third of our uh, MRR now comes from customers with more than 100 agents, and, and we are investing uh, all the time in order to uh, add capabilities within that area. Uh, but at the same time, keep the product super simple to deploy and configure. Um, so that, that that's one of our drivers. That that obviously helps us with win rate and new customer new customer acquisition. There are some interesting dynamics happening though, where we're seeing. I gave the example before about how. A large number of people are involved in the support and service process. So we're very interested in how we can support those people and in- increase the use of Zendesk beyond just the core base, but 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 uh, other um, uh, other people within the organization as well. So that's potentially uh, existing seats. And then obviously, as we add new value and add new products, then that increases the ARPU as well. So, I mean, you, you nailed the three vectors that we look at from any new product thing. It's it's win rate, seats, and ARPU. Yep, so what I just heard you saying, if you already have a relationship with a
0: support team at Company X, you're more likely to go buy something that you can then sell to their tech team or their marketing or their HR team than you are to go try and, you know, land a new customer in
1: some brand new product field. Yeah, we're careful about being very specific about, we want to win new customers, we want to own support, obviously. We, yep. I mean, we feel we should do, and we feel we offer a great co- competitive advantage there. Where we look at new buyer groups, and actually when people buy our support product, we actually find that their IT team will take it for, for answering tickets, their HR team will take it for doing internal customer service. And what we're starting to see now with this convergence of support and service, and this relates to the outbound acquisition, is that we're starting to see this merger between service and marketing as well. So rather than going after a whole new area, we look for overlaps and use cases of where our heartland is and and then look at how we expand out from there. Matt, before we wrap up with the famous five, because you're
0: public now, you have to be a little more careful about how you manage your public interviews and things. What is one idea, you, man, you so badly want to test it, but you would never recommend it in a public setting
1: with analysts because you know it would just blow the stock up. (laughs) Um, suggesting maybe I work from a Caribbean Island, <laughs> but that's probably that is a beautiful question. Dodge. I will give you credit.
0: <laughs> All right. Let's wrap up here, Matt, with the famous five. Number one, what's your favorite business book?
1: Um, I'm really enjoyed zone to win recently. It talks about how you incub- incubate products within a larger organization and bring them to market. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying currently? Um, I keep a very close eye on Michael fame, my own CEO. Uh, not actually not just from the fact that it's good to know what he w- he's thinking next, but actually he he is the real soul of the company. And uh, he has a really, really good compass as to what the right thing is to do and not. And I, I learned a heck of a lot from him. Number three, besides Zendesk, what's your favorite online tool for building the business? Uh, I think like a lot of the people you interview, I think the uh, LinkedIn I use a lot. I also like Crunchbase a lot. I, I think it, it provides a lot of valuable information, not just for investment, but you know, knowing who the investors are in a company really can help you understand a lot about the pedigree and and who the company is as well. In terms of should your sales team reach out and try to sell them because they just raised capital? No, actually, nothing. Not so much of that. It's just more of understanding. Um, You know, who who are their connections are, you know, and, and obviously understanding board relationships, especially as you acquire more investors, there's very likely to be an investor overlap within certain sectors. So really just trying to understand the dynamics and and work with other people, work with other people within the organization through an investor route can be very effective. Number four, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Um depends on which time zone i'm in or which one i've just moved to but i try and get six and then i'll try and get 45 a week and what's your situation married single you have kiddos i am single with a couple of kids single with a couple of kids and la- and matt hold
0: out how old are you today i am 50 50 last question take us back to your 20 year old
1: self what do you wish he knew uh i would tell myself to think bigger think a lot bigger
0: There, you guys have it from Matt Price. Think bigger. He's obviously been with Zendesk for about six years now through the IPO, through it all. They're thinking about both how to increase wallet share from current customers, deliver more value. It's a constant struggle with the marketing backlog in terms of what experiments to run, but they're figuring it it out. Do more cohort analysis. As he says, it's been a guiding light for him. Matt, thank you so much for taking us to the top.
1: Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.